Good morning. Man, I don't want to miss the great privilege and treasure it is for us to be able to sit here and uh, study God's word together. I mean, it's just, if you've grown up in the church, you just kind of go, we just go to church every Sunday and we sit down and we sing and we pray and, and then we hear a sermon as if like, I just had breakfast versus like, just imagine all these places in the world. They, they don't even have a copy of the scriptures and yet they hunger to hear from God. So I, I want you to know it is a great joy and a privilege and a treasure to uh, spend some time together in God's word. We are in the book of Acts. We just started a new series last week. Jeff kicked us off with a great sense of overview and a framework for this book and got us going. And, and we're overlapping with some of the texts that he covered last week. Um, just to get a great foundation for everywhere that we'll go in this book going forward. So my message today is actually going to cover the entire first chapter. Um, I'll hit those 11 verses that we uh, covered last week and then 12 through 26 as well. <clears throat> for those of you who might not have been here last week, I just want to remind us um, Acts is the second volume in a two-volume vol set that a man named Luke wrote. The first volume, his gospel, uh, looks at the life of Christ. The first four chapters really hone in on his birth and his childhood. And then the remaining 20 chapters of that book really take us through three years of ministry, which culminate around the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And along the way, he has this group of men and women that are following him, learning from him, growing in their understanding of who he is. And uh, we come to the end of Luke, and we're told about an ascension, uh, but Luke wasn't finished. He also penned uh, the second volume, the book of Acts, and this really helps us get a glimpse of the early church and how it was founded, how it was formed, its uh, earliest expansion. And that is our foundation, even 2,000 years later. It's crucial that we understand how this church began so that we can understand how our church will need to continue. In the beginning of this first chapter, uh, Luke mentions 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And uh, it's this period of time where there's still some preparations to be made before the church is actually launched. And so that's where we pick up in uh, the beginning of Acts, Acts 1, 1 and 2. Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
So this is certainly a, a foundation, and it's interesting. One of those men that was following Christ, one of the first disciples, a guy named Peter, he writes years later that we have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. If you are in Christ, if you have entrusted your life to him for the forgiveness of your sin, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Put in just everyday language, that means you and I truly have everything that we need to walk well with him throughout the entirety of our life. What we're going to see today are the first things of the all things. These are the first things that Christ gave his church to prepare them to do everything that he had called them to do. So that's where we pick up here in this first chapter. And the first thing is propitiation, propitiation. I know that's a a fancy theological word, but it is absolutely essential. We have to understand this provision, this gift that Christ has given us, or the others really don't mean anything. Now, this isn't obvious in the text, but I do want to highlight it. Uh, Luke wrote all that Jesus, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. There it is. Luke makes mention of the suffering of Christ. It's subtle. It's not the main point, but you got to have the suffering before everything else that follows. So what is this? Propitiation is appeasing or satisfying the consequences of offending another. So we've heard this maybe a hundred times, but we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans says the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence. That's the cost of our sin. God is the one who punishes sin, so he directs his wrath toward those who have offended him. This suffering here is the only way that you and I get out from under the wrath of God, the consequence that he has brought against it. So in that sense, Jesus is our substitute. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, in this is the love of God. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His blood satisfies, appeases the wrath of God on our behalf. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, so that in him, trusting in him, relying upon him, submitting to him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
There is no life, no forgiveness, no hope without the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus endured the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. That is the gift of propitiation. Now, after laying down his life, Jesus rose from the grave just as he said he would. And then in Acts 1-3, we're told he presented himself alive to his disciples by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I put together this slide just to give you an idea. These are 10 moments in that 40 days between resurrection and ascension where Jesus revealed himself and gave what Luke calls proofs to his disciples. I'm not going to go through these. If you want to take a picture of it or whatever, that's totally good. Or if you need me to email it to you, I will. But these were important moments where the risen Christ, before he ascended, visited his disciples to give them some concrete evidence for what they were experiencing. And that's the definition of proofs. These are concrete, objective, convincing, decisive evidence. You could call it irrefutable. This was meant to give them all that they would need in order to stand when it got really hard, when their life was on the line. I'm sure they went back to these days and they remember, I saw him, I heard him, I ate with him. Think of Thomas. Remember Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. I bet a lot of us are way more like him than we'd care to admit. He wasn't there in the first appearance that Jesus made with the 11. And so uh, they're talking later. They're like, we saw him. He's risen. And here's what Thomas says. Listen, if I don't touch his flesh, see his wounds, put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Pretty bold. Honest. Jesus appears again. Thomas is with the disciples. I'm pretty sure, you know, Jesus either just appears or walks through a wall, does something to get everyone's attention. And he says, Thomas. Come over here. <laughs> Looky here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Touch it. And what does Thomas do? He worships. You are the Lord. I believe. And then Jesus says, Blessed are those who never see me but believe. He did for Thomas what needed to be done so that he could. What a gift. And I'm just assuming if the disciples needed proofs, then we need them too. Here's the difference. We don't get to sit in that room. We don't get to see the risen Christ and eat a meal with him. But it's all recorded in the scriptures. And we need to understand this is our proof. This book. And if you wonder about its reliability, go after it. They've been doing that for 2,000 years. 
It can stand the test. There's been no greater scrutiny given to any piece of literature on earth than this to try and disprove it. And it's still hanging in there. Questions around the the historicity of the cross and the resurrection, the deity of Christ. All of those questions are great questions in Christianity as a whole. It, it, It can stand. Put it to the test. We have all the proof that we need. And Christianity is rational. It requires faith, yes. But it is based on historical reality. So if you have questions, if you have doubts, that's great. Bring them. Don't sit back in judgment of something that you haven't really explored. Go after it. I think it will encourage you. And surprise you. So we have propitiation, we have proofs, and the next we have power, another provision that Jesus made for the early church. In verses four through eight, it says, While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, I did read somewhere that uh, somehow this book, um, Luke's second volume, got titled The Acts of the Apostles, and it might have been better titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the church kind of played along, right? (laughs) Um, So we are going to do a lot of work on understanding the Holy Spirit, his role, his activity, his provisions, his purpose. Um, This book is really about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the early church. So we'll spend a lot of attention there. But Jesus is saying to his disciples in this 40-day period, there is going to come a time where the Holy Spirit is going to act upon you in a way that he hasn't previously. And that's going to be an essential thing. It's also going to be something that has been anticipated for centuries, going all the way back. The promise of the Father that Luke mentioned, or Jesus mentions there, Joel 2.28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." One word about these Old Testament prophecies, they typically get thrown into the end times or eschatology, but I'm not sure how we can divorce this statement in Joel from the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We're going to study this in the next two weeks, but it goes down exactly like Joel described. This idea of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Here's Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations, God says, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's speaking of spirit baptism. Now, there's a lot of opinions and thoughts and ideas about that that you may or may not have heard. Again, we're going to cover that next week, but I want to give you just an initial statement of what that is. Spirit baptism is a work of God at conversion, permanently uniting believers with Jesus and with one another. That's as simple as I can say it. There's a lot of implications, but that's what happens at the moment of conversion. A person is indwelt and therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, power is an interesting thing, isn't it? When you and I think of having power, I wonder, I wonder what we're thinking about that we might use it for. We think of like military power, economic power, political power, social power. All of those things meant to control, manage our circumstances in this life that's basically just a blip in all of eternity. We try to take power and use it for such shallow things. The power here is given for the purpose of proclamation. We're going to get to that next. But they were to get power to proclaim, to proclaim the greatest news the earth had ever received. And that's what they needed power for. I mean, people all over kind of figure out how to do life, how to get from here to there, how to do their job, how to manage things. But th this is eternally significant. A message that Paul says has the power of salvation in it. That's what they needed. They needed the Holy Spirit and the power to carry the good news of the gospel around the world. And that is the next thing that we have in our list here. That's purpose. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses are those who testify, and the Greek word there is martyres, where we get martyr. So already, this idea of being witnesses, it was testifying to the truth about God and His Savior, even at the cost of your life. You can see the need for power. God has always wrapped his message in flesh. John starts his gospel. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's the pattern. That's what God has always done is he's put his message in people for people. It's incarnational ministry. It's us bringing what we know about God in flesh and blood 
to the people around us who need to hear it. Now, here's what struck me. This is meaning of life kind of stuff. Don't we all want to know what all this is about? Not just how we got here, but why we're here. What difference does any of this make? What difference do we make? How can we know when we get to the end of our life that anything mattered? Here's the answer right here. You and I can give our lives to the mission and know that it has been every bit as significant, full of purpose and meaning that was intended. Last year was the 20th anniversary of Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. It has sold 50 million, over 50 million copies and has been translated into over 130 languages. Do you think there is some interest out there in the purpose of life? Here are five purposes that Rick gives in his book. You were planned for God's pleasure, formed for God's family, created to become like Christ, shaped to serve, and made for a what? A mission. That sounds a little bit like what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But we see it here in 1.8. You will be my witnesses. It is right at the center of our purpose. Once we come to know Christ, everything else is secondary. We are here to help others know Christ. Here's how the navigators put Dawson Trotman founded Navigators in 1933. And I remember hearing this phrase on the college campus and then for years after, if you Google it, you'll see it everywhere. Here's what the Navigators say they're all about. Make Christ known. I'm sorry, know Christ. Make Christ known and help others do the same. There it is. That's our purpose. Do you want your life to have great purpose and meaning, then make it your aim every day to show and share the good news about Jesus across the street and around the world. That's what we're about. Now, as you're going, here's the last provision. You have a great high priest. And... uh, He's seated at the right hand of God, and that's what the ascension is really all about. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I can't imagine what that moment was like for these disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, saw him crucified, assumed he was gone forever. He reappears, and then just think about it. You're like, don't ever leave again. And there he goes. 
awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. But aren't we glad he did? He is seated at the right hand of God. John, 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father. A defense attorney who stands in our place and pleads our case moment by moment. Romans 8, and 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Propitiation. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That doesn't happen if he doesn't ascend. Now, the angels assured the disciples he was going to return. So that's our promise. We're waiting for that. But our instructions, our assignment is to go, to live on mission. Now, we do have an interesting pause, speed bump, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to read from Luke 24, but it shows up in our passage as well. Uh, in Luke 24, 47 through 49, it says... Uh, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus, named to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That was the cause. 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, in a sense, before you go, wait. Before you go, he says to his disciples, Wait, and then in Acts 1-4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And here's what strikes me about that. Waiting on the Lord is a vital practice for Christian living. It wasn't just for this moment. This actually is a bit of a pattern for us to follow. We're also, also always supposed to be in this posture of waiting. Now, what we do is learn about waiting from this first moment, verses 12 through 26. We see what it looks like for Christ followers to wait and follow and ultimately go. Verse 12, then they returned Jerusalem from the Mount of called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers." Taken from Luke, quick interjection here, Luke 24, 51 through 33. While Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. There's the ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So we have them in the temple and we have them in the upper room and we have them engaging in waiting. Verse 15, 
In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Wow. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that this field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Jesus chose twelve disciples to mirror the twelve tribes of Israel. We see... Jesus spoke of it in Matthew. We see it in Revelation as well that these 12 apostles will have a place in eternity, 12 thrones. That's God's business, whatever he wants to do with those guys. But, but there is an expectation that they will have some kind of leadership. So one of these leaders defected, Judas, and that seat had to be filled. They knew that even as they went into this time of, quote, waiting. So it's interesting to me that there's work to be done even while we're waiting. Side note, apostasy, though tragic, cannot thwart the redemptive plan of God. We grieve it. It is heartbreaking. But that doesn't slow anything down. The Lord is going to get done what he wants to get done. We do learn from this passage the qualifications for an apostle. Jeff touched on this last week, but it is an irrepeatable kind of scenario. These 12 men met certain qualifications that no one else in the rest of history can possibly meet. We see that they were uh, there from the baptism all the way to the ascension. So they witnessed all of that. They heard Jesus' teaching. They saw the resurrected Christ in person. And they're chosen. These two guys both qualified. I love the fact that the disciples, in their posture of submission and waiting, invited the Lord to choose. They did it through the practice of casting lots. We, we don't do that. You're welcome to. You just better stick to whatever the results are. But we do believe that the Lord is in charge, right? 
So we do our best to follow him and do as he says, and then we entrust the results to him. I, I think what we can get from this passage is what it looks like to wait well, and it particularly relates to their posture. I want to just highlight a few things. First of all, it is active, not passive. There's a sense of being ready that's involved here. They're obedient. They are doing what they know to do and waiting to do the things that the Lord said to wait for. They are unified. Together is better. It was from the very beginning, and it always will be. They are prayerful. I've heard this phrase, talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. I think that's what they're doing. They're God-honoring. They are in worship. They're operating in a context of great joy. They're blessing God. They're keeping their attention on him. And then lastly, I just want to highlight the fact that Peter, who in other places is called an uneducated man, very clearly links Old Testament scripture with his contemporary context. So he's saying the Old Testament, and he quotes Scripture, points to the loss of Judas and the need to fill fill his seat. So already, Scripture has a place of authority over everything else. And that's as it should be. My opinion, your opinion, anybody's opinion on earth does not matter if it does not align with this book. This has absolute authority over everything else. So they're waiting. And next week we're going to see the provision of what they were told to wait for. But until then, I want to ask this question, and this is going to be our so what for this morning. What place or priority does this practice of waiting have in your life? Would you even say that's a good description of how you make your way through life? Is it in a posture of waiting on the Lord? I think our natural tendency is to decide what we want to do, where we want to go, and then to ask God to bless it. And this is a complete reversal of that. And then secondly, is your life fueled and directed by these first things that the Lord granted his people. So we're going to take a time of prayer to the end of the morning. And I'm going to ask you to pray very specifically around these things that we have seen in this passage. Here's a slide to give you some prompts. And I I have no idea what the Lord has for you this morning, but I do know with absolute certainty that the job of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. And so you and I can, can invite the Lord to show us. Lord, I mean, propitiation, if you don't know Christ, that's where you need to start. Beyond that, maybe there are some proofs that you need. Ask the Lord for that. Maybe you haven't really accessed His power. Maybe you've just relied upon yourself. Talk to God about that. 
maybe it just is this idea of waiting well. I want you to take some time and wherever you need to spend some time in prayer, talk to God. He will hear you and he will speak through his spirit to your spirit and give you whatever direction you need. So take a few moments and then I'll close us in prayer. feel like it's been very clear to you this morning. It's just the Lord put his finger on something in your life, a need that you have, a hurdle that's in your way, a step that you need to take, whatever it is. I want to encourage you to write that down, maybe on your notes or in your phone. But let that be a bit of a a benchmark for you as we go into this book as we invite God to do a work in our lives and use us greatly in the year ahead, going outward with the mission, it will be very easy just to fly past whatever it is that God has shown you today. So make note of that and then make that a continuing matter of prayer. I love this statement that those disciples devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer is speaking to God, but certainly listening to God and following his lead.
Let me close us. Uh, Lord Jesus, it has been a beautiful reminder to me of you seated at the right hand of majesty on a throne that you are worthy to fill. Lord, thank you that you are our advocate. Thank you for interceding on our behalf. Thank you for laying down your life so that we could have life. And Lord, we are a needy, confused, helpless people without you. And so we invite you to to be our pastor, to shepherd us, to use us as you please, as witnesses. We adore you. We praise you. We magnify your name and pray that we might be a light in this dark world. We thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that you have granted to us pertaining to life and godliness. Help us walk in that in the days ahead. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.